Redemption's Table. I'm Robert Barge, your host. We've just heard the first half of a blues-filled song by Esther Sparks, Ask the Animals, off of her Esther and the Protesters album from 2006. I say thank you, Esther, for graciously allowing us to share this particular song right out of the Old Testament book of Job, Ask the Animals and They Will Teach You. I encourage you to check out and purchase more of Esther's music on whatever platform you listen to tunes. We will be listening to the second half of Esther's song at the end of today's episode. Last week, we began a six-week series from 2021 on the book of Job that we will be presenting off and on throughout the summer and into the early fall. And if you missed last week's table episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to the introduction of Wrestling with God in the series of Job, entitled, When Your World Comes Apart. Now, this week, we will cover Job chapters 8 through 14, when the words of friends are as empty as God is silent. When this series was originally shared, a midweek worship gathering of folks were encouraged to read these seven chapters ahead of time and search for verses that spoke to them. I compared the midsection of Job like looking for diamonds in a coal mine without a candle. God's diamonds are always there. We just have to slow ourselves down sometimes and allow our spiritual eyes to adjust from the darkness of the world to the light of God's truth. And I shared this last week. You can find all six of these Job episodes unedited on the Redemption's Table YouTube channel. Just scroll back to April, May of 2021. I also encourage you to share them because you have friends who right now are going through the season of Job in their lives. So thanks for tuning in. Let's jump in and get started. Last week we talked about the subheading wrestling with God in the season of Job was when our world falls apart, when our life falls apart. Tonight, the topic is when the words of men are as empty as God is silent. 
that, that means that men's words, people's words to us are empty at the same time that God is silent. Because uh, you and I both know our friend's words are not always empty and God is not always silent. Tonight we're going a little bit deeper into the heart of the book of Job. We kind of started out last week. And we know where we were last week. Job's three friends show up. They remain silent for seven days. And Job is the one who breaks the silence. And Job three, and then each of his three friends take turns responding to what Job has said. And there's this back and forth, three against one. This is kind of like tag team counseling. <laughs> Not really. They're beating up on him uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, and you've heard me compare this midsection to... It's like looking for diamonds in a coal mine without a candle. The diamonds are there, but it usually takes patient stillness before our spiritual eyes adjust, before God reveals himself. God's reward is worth the search, worth the stillness, worth the patience, worth the wait. And I just want to say I'm glad that his three friends, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, I'm glad they showed up. And I'm glad they spoke up because if they had not, I don't know, I think the book might have been shorter. Even when they said inane things, even when they were spouting bumper sticker platitudes, even when they made wrong assumptions, even in their arrogance, even though they added to Job's pain, this is a conversation that breathes. This is a conversation that allows God to speak. And that's why conversations are so rewarding. Words can be good. That's part of why I love the last 25 minutes of our time together when we share gleanings from what God has spoken to us or, or what we've discovered for ourselves. When we're forced to communicate with fresh words, especially when the person we're talking to just doesn't get what we're trying to say. It's amazing how we receive truth that we would not have thought of otherwise coming out of our own mouths. And the irony of tonight's title, when the words of men are as empty as God is silent, is that God is never as silent as he seems. He's able to speak as we converse, even when we're not talking to him. Not only is he able to speak, God is also is able to grant us colossal insights into who he is. Even in the midst of bad counseling. And that's exactly what this is. If your counselor, if your therapist, if your minister sounds like this, go find another one. <laughs> I'm not talking about finding someone who tells you what you want to hear. I'm talking about somebody who is willing to tell you the truth. The words that they tell you are backed up by the word of God. Because you can find friends to tell you what you want to hear. You can find so-called Christian friends who will offer advice. And not all of it is good. Sometimes it's bad. I'm amazed at what I hear a brother or sister in Christ told someone when they were going through a crisis. I'm like, well, they got that advice from the world. They did not get it from God. So I'm glad this conversation is in the Bible. It's the longest conversation in Scripture. And as you continue to read on the coming chapters, pay particular attention to the first thing and the last thing in each section when each person speaks. 
Years ago, I had someone tell me, pay attention to the end of a conversation you have with someone because that's usually the thing, especially if they said, I want to come talk to you. That's usually what they came to talk to you about. Not always, but usually it is. And I think it's interesting, the first questions that every person asks. Of course, God's two questions, the only two questions he's asked thus far, he asked Satan, where have you come from? Well, God's on this end. He knew everywhere Satan had been. He just, and Satan had to be honest if he reminded himself, well, God's an omniscient, so if I don't come clean, he's going to get me. Where have you come from? That was more like a, hi, how are you doing? And then his question, have you considered my servant Job? While you were out and about, and I know you were close to him, did you consider him? Satan's first question, does Job fear God for nothing? He's being who he is, the accuser. Job's wife, are you still holding on to your integrity? Job's response to his wife, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Last week, the question came up about was God, was Job's wife, did she curse God and die? And it hit me this week, no. Because if you go to the end of the book of Job, when God blesses Job, and I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't already know, but when he brings children back into Job's life, new children, it says, it doesn't say he God brought a new wife. She was still there. So I think it would tell us that if, you know, he had a brand new wife because his wife died. It didn't happen. But are you holding on to your integrity? Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Eliphaz, first question. If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Kind of a little attitude. Bildad, how long will you say such things? So far, are all these words to go unanswered? We pick up chapter 8 with Bildad's response. How long will you say such things? Bildad is the friend of the three that I might like to smack. <laughs> he insinuates early on right there that Job's children died because of their sin. Oh. He insinuates that Job does not know how to pray. He he insults Job and his insults are vivid and filled with imagery and sometimes he speaks more truth than I think he realizes. Some of what Bildad says to me sounds a lot like it reminds me of Floyd the barber on the Andrew Griffith show. You know, one time Floyd and Andy are sitting out in front of his barber shop and the bus comes along and Floyd's just spouting his wisdom like he does and he said, the bus bringeth and the bus taketh away. You know, that's a lot like life. And that's kind of how Bildad comes across. He's just kind of like, you have a clue what you're saying. Job, Job 9 and 10, the next two chapters contain Job's response. He begins his response in a spirit of worship, a spirit of awe. And then midway through chapter 9, he shifts to frustration. With a powerful if only. And a couple of my diamonds are found in, in Job 9. I'm going to kind of gloss over them because I'm afraid I'll run out of time if I don't. Maybe I'll come back to them if there's time at the end. But I just want to say that right here, I realize in Job 9 and 10, this is another reason I am grateful to God for including the book of Job in the Bible. Because the kind of faith that Job expresses, his up and down response... This is not the kind of faith you see lived out often or allowed to be lived out. 
And of all places, the body of Christ. And I understand that to a degree, but we pretend like this kind of angst that Job churns up occasionally doesn't exist, or if it does get stirred up, this is because the person is weak, they have a weak faith, or they have a lesser than faith, or a sinful faith that needs correcting, and that's just not so. And that's the assumption all three of these guys make, all three of Job's friends. He needs to be straightened out. Like I say, I found a couple of diamonds in chapter 9. Uh, I'll hold off on those. So he responds. He ends the chapter, Job 10. He lets it all hang out at this point with God. He, this is where he reaches the venting point. And here's some of what he rants, according to the message paraphrase. God, how does this fit into what you once called good? You gave me life itself, an incredible love. You watched and guarded every breath I took, but you never told me about this part. <laughs> I should have known that there was more to it. I try to make the best of it, try to brave it out, but you're too much for me, God. Isn't it time to call it quits on my life? Can't you let up and just let me smile for once? <laughs> That's where he was. You know, his pain is coming through here. Yeah. Diamond number three comes in chapter 11. Zophar's chapter. Even Job's contenders have some diamonds to share. But because of their attitude or the way they come across, God's truths the, the, through them may be harder to see, harder to find. Zophar is obnoxious. But that doesn't hinder him from dropping a gem here in 11.6 when he says this. For true wisdom has two sides. That's the gem. That's the diamond I caught. True wisdom has two sides. And true wisdom does have two sides. Where does wisdom come from? God. Solomon told us in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. To me, one of the most powerful promises in the New Testament is James chapter 1, verse 5. Love this promise. I claim this promise. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Wisdom will be given to them is what the promise says. The last 20 years, I have prayed that prayer Almost daily. I am now praying the last 10 years. It's been prayed daily. Anything you hear coming out of my mouth that sounds wise, it's not, it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with God just answering that prayer. Because I pray daily for God's wisdom. And he says here, true wisdom has two sides. There's the side of wisdom we have already learned from the Lord. That's one half. And the side of wisdom that God has yet to reveal to us, has yet to give us. There's your two sides right there. Now, I want to ask you, which of those two sides do you think is greater? If you ever encounter an individual and, and they're very intelligent, they have a high IQ, often those type of people, not all, but often they are the hardest to reach with the good news of Jesus. They're just resistant to it. To the, to, to the good news, to the gospel. Here's a great question to ask them. And you can say, don't have the spirit of Zophar when you ask the question. 
be gentle like Jesus, but just ask them of all the things that there is to know, of all the knowledge that there is to know, what percentage of knowledge do you think you already know? If they answer more than 1%, they may be in trouble. <laughs> even, even a genius, uh, even somebody like Einstein. But which of those two sides do you think is greater? What God has revealed to you already or what he has not yet revealed to you? I'm reading a book by Erwin McManus right now called Wide Awake. And I just finished one of the chapters and he was talking about eternity when we get to heaven. And I love what he says here. He says, eternity isn't the place where you get all the answers. So sometimes what we think, we're going to ask God. We're going to have our list ready and we're going to lay into it. He says, eternity isn't where you get all the answers. Eternity is a place where you get all new questions. A place where you will always be learning. And then he says this, and I love this. I've never thought about this before, but he says, God is infinite. How long does it take to know everything about an infinite God? And he answers the question. He says, oh, I'd say about eternity. Wow. I don't know how we ever came up with this concept that heaven is going to be static. Sitting around, plucking a harp, sitting on a cloud, or forevermore in a praise and worship, that which we may not like praise and worship. We may like the hymns. And I think at that point, God's not going to take a survey and say, what do you like to sing? Uh, you know? Does your church have all wisdom? Does your denomination have all wisdom? No, they don't. Does your gender have all wisdom? Guys, you think you're smarter than the ladies? Ladies, vice versa? No. No. Does your political persuasion have all wisdom? No. Does your skin tone have all wisdom? Wisdom has two sides. Indicating that there will be times when we need to reason together. Come together. That's, that's, that's part of our problem in our culture today. Just the lack of being able to come together. To reason together is to bring the wisdom of God that God has taught me. And to hear the wisdom of God that God has taught you and to share and to listen and to lean in and understand that we're looking for what God has said, the wisdom God has given. We're not just looking for opinion. God's wisdom should be our main desire to know that desire more than we desire power. For our need is him to hear from him. And I, I just want to, I thought it was just cool that one of my favorite diamonds happened to be something one of the three guys said so far. Well, Job 12 opens up. Job drips with sarcasm as he responds to Zophar. <laughs> the, way, the way it starts out, he says, uh, I love this. He says, doubtless, talking about his three friends, because he says, Talking to all three of them at this point. Doubtless, you guys are the people and wisdom will die with you. In other words, it's obvious you have a corner on wisdom. But I have a mind as well as you. I am not inferior to you in any way. Who does not know all these things you're saying? He's saying, you're not telling me anything here. Then he goes down a few verses and here's my fourth diamond. Verse 7, but ask the animals and they will teach you or the birds of the air and they will tell you 
or speak to the earth and it will teach you or let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In other words, creation knows what you're trying to explain to me and they know it a lot better than you do. And when Job said this, it is as if he is declaring a truth on the ground right above the missile silo of God. Because Job is so close to what God says when God shows up in Job 38 through 41. Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they are just skimming the surface as to who God is. But Job Indicating in this response right here, he is 880 fathoms deep. He's a mile deep. He has it all over them as far as understanding God at this point, even though he's the one struggling. But thanks to Adam and Eve, we were all evicted from the Garden of Eden. And if it hadn't been them, somebody by now would have messed up. I can tell you, I can guarantee you after September 19th, 1959, we're all in trouble unless the day I was born. I came into this world. Really, you know. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> enough said. I mean, I would have messed it up. I promise you. I've messed it up many times if it, it was laid on me. So we're all evicted from the Garden of Eden. But here's the deal. Here's the amazing deal about the grace of God. Even though we are outside of Eden, we are still brushing Eden every day. Or Eden <laughs> is brushing us. I was on my motorcycle a couple of years ago, driving up to Birmingham, 2019 in the spring. I'm going about 65, 70 miles per hour down the interstate, but out of my peripheral vision, right over here in tall grass, I caught a streak of brown. And you know, in my mind, it's amazing how quickly the eye can pick something up. And I, and I saw uh, some dots, on some white dots on the brown. And I, at first I thought it was a bunny rabbit. No, it wasn't a bunny rabbit, it was a fawn. And the fawn was running back and forth in that tall grass. And, of course, it was just a split second, but I could, it's almost like my mind has a, a photograph of it. And I thought to myself in that moment, as I'm speeding by 70 miles per hour, I was skirting the edge of Eden, and heaven was flirting with me. Every time I see a murmuration of birds, I'm in awe. Murmuration of birds is where there's like 100,000 birds and they're just, you know, they're all moving in the same direction. And what do they do? They shift. And they shift. And I'm like, how do they do that? I guarantee if I'm, if I'm in that group, I'm going to be the guy that's running into everybody and messing it all up. How do they do that? It's awe-inspiring. Uh, we were created to commune with God in nature. We just were. I read a statistic a few weeks ago that tells, that, that tells us that we spend over, ready for this? We spend over 90% of our lives, our waking lives, indoors. That hurts my soul just to hear that. God speaks. God has wisdom to share through others we might not expect. And these others are little fawns running around by the side of the road or bare or in places we may not suspect. I know Michael has the telescope out. And he can tell us what's going on in the heavens right now. And yet God speaks through his creation. In 1896, George Washington Carver was invited by Booker T. Washington to come and be the 
department, the head of the Department of Agriculture at Tuskegee Institute at the time. And one of the things that Carver did, he routinely awakened at 4 a.m. and walked in the woods at 4 a.m. And one of the most circled promises in his copy of God's Word is right here, Proverbs 12, 7 and 8. Speak to the earth, it will teach you. Listen to the animals, they will teach you. Listen to the birds, they will teach you. And Carver took this diamond, that promise of scripture at face value. He literally asked God to reveal the mysteries of nature. I love the way Carver shares his conversation with God in his writings. He says, I asked God, why did you make the universe, Lord? And God said to me, ask for something more in proportion to that little mind of yours. <laughs> he says, why did you make the earth, Lord? Carver asked. God says, your little mind still wants to know far too much. Ask for something more in proportion to that little mind of yours. Carver said, why did you make man? Far too much, far too much. Ask again. Carver said, well, explain to me why you made plants. Your little mind still wants to know far too much. And Carver said, well, what about the peanut? God's response in a prayer that Carver had with God, he says, yes. For your modest proportions, I will grant you the mystery of the peanut. Take it inside your laboratory and separate it into water, fats, amino acids, gums, resins, sugar, starches. Then recombine these under my three laws of compatibility, temperature, and pressure. Then you will know why I created the peanut. And Carver did just that. He, he is famous. He's famous for, for telling us about crop rotation. He's also famous for discovering over 300 uses for the peanut. He saved the economy of lower Alabama because of his knowledge, and his knowledge came as a result of answer prayer. It all began with one conversation with God. It all began when Carver discovered a diamond in the coal mine of Job. All right, one more real quick. Job 13, 14. Job 13 begins, Job is filled with zingers. He's really laying into these guys. He says, I desire to speak to the Almighty. I don't want to talk to you guys. I want to talk to God. I desire to speak to the Almighty. You guys, you are worthless physicians, is what he calls them. If only you could be altogether silent. This is, that's a polite way of saying shut up. At <laughs> it. And then I can picture Job sitting on his ash heap as he says this next thing. I can picture him there scooping up ashes, holding them up when he says, your maxims are proverbs, ashes. Diamond number five, verse seven through 10. He says this, keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, verse 13, verse 15, excuse me. Though God slay me, yet will I hope in him. 
I will surely defend my ways to his face. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. And I submit to you, this is faith. This is trust at its deepest level. Though only for a brief moment, this is a depth of knowing God and God's goodness so deeply, so assuredly, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him that it makes little sayings like, God is good all the time, seem like little children's songs. And don't get me wrong, we need little children's songs at times when our faith is hitting some hard places. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. This is the child Isaac laying himself upon his father's altar. I don't know how, but I trust my father. This is Jesus slaying himself on the cross of wood. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job makes this tremendous declaration of hope and faith. But then when you go into Job 14, you realize what rose to high tide in Job 13, 15, bottoms out again by the end of chapter 14. As Job descends into more depths of hopelessness. This is the testimony of the same person going through suffering and grief. And as I look at his ups and downs, I realize this. I am in good company. So are you. Oh, the life of every creature, every creature in a its hand. Now 